This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You know, I regret having to say this, but we all know that President Trump, um, in the course of his service, has disrespected science and scientists, uh, has told an awful lot of untruths, uh, and his mm-hmm. own record back during the Ebola virus outbreak, <clears throat> which happened when President Obama was president and Joe Biden was vice president, uh, President Trump stood on the sidelines and helped with the fear mongering and the spread of disinformation. Most Democrats are looking for a candidate other than Bernie Sanders. I've got the most delegates other than Bernie Sanders, the most votes other than Bernie Sanders, and I'm the only one to beat him anywhere on the map this year. Cuba is an authoritarian country. I have decried and condemned authoritarianism, whether it's on the left or the right, all over the world. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So I didn't sleep much last night because I was thinking about something Preet Bharara said to a friend of mine, reportedly said, that it's time to turn to the arts. I mean, you know things are dire when one of the great judicial minds of our time and Trump opponents has said, we're to the last resort and the last measure of hope lies in the arts, not the dark arts of campaigning, artful manipulation of congressional power, or the art of high-functioning legal minds. The the arts, the real arts, like painting and music and dance and poetry. Oh, heaven help us. But I tend to agree. And I still recommend Dave Eggers' novel, The Captain and the Glory, as a way to capture some of the sensory emotional experiences of the last years. I'm also looking forward, who isn't, to Jordan Peele's Candyman. Have you seen that trailer? The other thing that kept me up last night was a clip from Joe Biden's town hall. Now, this is the moment that Biden spoke to a pastor whose wife was killed in the 2015 Charleston church shooting. And what he said to the man was, I kind of know what it's like to lose family, and my heart goes out to you. What struck me most while Biden spoke with tears in his eyes, and admittedly, I had tears in mine, was how even as he spoke of his son Bo's death and Bo's dying plea to him not to go hard and shut down, but to stay engaged even after he died— I just, I noticed how extremely deferential Biden was to the reverend's own experience of losing his wife, and he didn't fold it into his own. He also talked about how he returned to Mother Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church that Sunday after the shooting in 2015. And he said, because I had just lost my son and I wanted some hope. And this wasn't exactly just reaching out to the Black community or finding the right words to say that will attract more Black voters. I mean, he even made another reference, Biden did, to another Black pastor, and he started to describe him as my good friend. And then he corrected himself to say my good acquaintance. And there was just something so precise in that and like non-proprietary. He wasn't trying to to own this guy or claim this guy or claim his moral authority as a black pastor. His self-correction and self-awareness around that just really struck me. And at the same time, Biden didn't want to own all of grief and claim these, this unearned friendship or connection to a community. He wanted to He wanted to be invited before he was let in. But he did want to say, 
that he has suffered, and that this isn't a demographic question as much as a human question, that his suffering, his heartbreak, his manifest heartbreak as someone who has lost a wife, a daughter, and a son, was the thing that might recommend him as someone the voters could connect with. Now, has has Biden always been perfect? Does it make up for Anita Hill that he picketed twice in 1961 and 62 for civil rights? He participated in his racist, tough-on-crime malarkey, as he might call it. And he's made so many missteps in his eight decades on Earth. And this makes up for none of it. But I can say, as the daughter of a lifelong Catholic liberal in the Kennedy-Biden tradition, that very few white men of Biden's stripe, no one in my family, and even McGovern supporters, went to the line for civil rights in 61 and 62. So it's not nothing what he did. There's something open and broken about him that gets him to understand the experience of marginalized people. And then coupled with his capacity to model grief and resiliency and healing for the nation, the heartbreak that's no respecter of persons. All of it, us are hit by it. And even far too many of us have lost children under Trump to family separations or gun violence or synagogues that are mowed down or Heather Heyer in Charlottesville or police murders or even right-wing cult thinking. And losing a child is losing a child and losing hope is losing hope. I don't know who should be the president or who can win. I really, really don't. But I finally developed an appreciation for Biden as in his heartbroken, blown-open old manness, This is not an endorsement, but I just—Biden is the person I might want to be present with me in my grief over what this nation has become. My guest today is Natasha Bertrand, the national security correspondent at Politico. Natasha's here to remind us that Trump is nowhere near done inflicting damage on this country yet. She'll bring us up to date on what he has done to crush dissent and smother truth that our elected officials and the American people direly need. I'll be back with Natasha in just a minute. But first, the tweets. Crazy, chaotic, Democratic debate last night. Fake news said Biden did well, even though he said half of our population was shot to death. Would be over for most. Mini-Mike was weak and unsteady, but helped greatly by his many commercials, which are not supposed to be allowed during a debate. Pocahontas was mean and undisciplined, mostly aiming at Crazy Bernie and many Mike. They didn't know how to handle her, but I know she's a chucker. Steyer was a disaster, who, along with many, are setting records for dollars per vote. Just give me an opponent. CDC and my administration are doing a great job of handling coronavirus, including the very early closing of our borders to certain areas of the world. It was opposed by the Dems too soon, but turned out to be the correct decision, no matter how well we do it. However, the Democrats' talking point is that we are doing badly. If the virus disappeared tomorrow, they would say we did a really poor job, an even incompetent job. Not fair, but it is what it is. So far, by the way, we have not had one death. Let's keep it that way.
Natasha, welcome back to Trumpcast. It's so good to have you here again. Thanks for having me. Okay, so just as Trump seems to be doing with the coronavirus, hiring or getting Mike, moving Mike Pence into the position to crush information about it from getting to the American people, he's been doing with intelligence. He did not like the fact that the unsurprising news that Russia is still conducting information warfare in the country. He did not like that getting out. And so he's come up with his usual way of concealing information, hiring, moving Rick Grinnell into the slot of acting DNI. Yeah. So I want to note, obviously, that the White House has been pushing back on that, saying that DNI McGuire, former DNI McGuire's uh, firing had nothing to do with this briefing, but mm-hmm. our reporting is that McGuire was telling people, associates, about two days before he was ousted, that there was a good chance that he was going to be nominated by the White House to be the director of national intelligence. So mm-hmm. he clearly did not see this coming, and really the only the only event that took place between him telling associates that and the White House de- de- deciding to replace him with Rick Grinnell was Trump finding out about this briefing. Um, So we saw an immediate move by the White House to install Rick Grinnell to the extent that McGuire actually wasn't even told it was happening. He learned about it from reporters reaching out um, for comment about Rick Grinnell's appointment. And he called the national security advisor who told him, yes, we're interviewing Rick right now. You know, Mm. we expect you to be to be gone. And at the same time, two people who are very high ranking at ODNI were also told to pack their bags despite being despite offering to stay on and help with Grinnell's transition. So this was clearly a very swift move uh, by the White House to kind of, you know, quell any kind of any hint of disloyalty or, or any, you know, anything like that uh, at the at the country's top intel office. Were there any other signs that McGuire as acting DNI was, quote, disloyal? I still don't know where, I still don't know when Trump decides that someone is loyal or disloyal. Yeah, it's a good question. So we we haven't heard of any other instances because if anything, McGuire was instrumental in keeping the whistleblower uh, complaint from Congress, right? If you remember, it was mm. ODNI's lawyer um, who recommended that the whistleblower complaint not be given to Congress because it wasn't considered an, an intelligence matter, um, in their opinion. And McGuire was the one who kind of uh, relayed that. So, if anything, he was kind of a barrier to to that coming out for as long as it was uh, kept under wraps. So the really only only trigger that we've seen is the briefing that was given by one of his uh, officials to the House Intel Committee. As we know, anything related to Adam Schiff and Russia really sets off the president. So it seems to have been a very spur of the moment decision where they needed someone Senate confirmed like Rick Grinnell um, and someone loyal also like Rick Grinnell to, to fill the void. So how do we, if there's some sense that, you know, McGuire seemed loyal till he didn't. And, the you know, it seems like, as you say, the major test of loyalty is how well he's able to either, how well someone's able to either obstruct justice for the president or keep information from, from Adam Schiff and from the American people um, in advance that's, that's unfavorable to the president, or he sees as unfavorable to him. So McGuire does it till he doesn't. But how does he know that Rick Grinnell, who's been ambassador to Germany, is a loyalist? 
So Rick Grinnell has been an outspoken supporter of the president since I would say late 2016, because actually in the Mm. beginning of 2016, he was a vocal John Kasich supporter Mm. um, and he railed against Donald Trump and since deleted tweets. So (laughs) he definitely jumped on the bandwagon a little later than some of the, you know, most ferocious defenders of the president that, that now are in the White House. But he has made no secret of his alignment with the president's agenda. You know, he speaks out regularly on Twitter, um, which, of course, is Trump's favorite platform. So he is definitely seen as someone who can carry the president's water in that way. And he was the ambassador to Germany and was was delivering very Trumpian um you know, policies and statements and and things like that to in Berlin to the extent where he he was actually very much uh, not well liked by diplomats there. So he uh, has proven himself to the president as someone that can at least temporarily um, hold down the fort there. And it remains to be seen, of course, who who Trump is going to nominate. But uh, it doesn't seem like there are any particular hurry to do that. He has he, right now he's there till March, but it may go on. Is that right? Just till next month? It may. Yeah, because depending on who they nominate, obviously, it could be a very long, drawn out confirmation process. So one way to kind of, if you're going to be cynical about it, to to drag out Grinnell's tenure is to nominate someone who is unconfirmable. So mm. we'll see how that plays out. Ugh. In Germany, was he, do you think, well, do they suspect, as far as your reporting goes, do the Germans, do Merkel, do, does NATO suspect that having someone like Grinnell there was meant to keep the Germans and keep the Europeans in check. Yeah, no, I see where you're coming from, for sure. Actually, one of the interesting things, obviously, is the fact that that Grinnell is still ambassador to Germany while serving as Ugh. acting DNI. And Germany is obviously very sensitive about U.S. surveillance yeah. because of what happened with uh, in 2013, of course, with Barack Obama and Angela Merkel and her phone being tapped by the U.S., um, so they're, uh, you know, in in speaking with diplomats over there and former officials there, they actually said, yeah, this this irks them because now you have the director of the entire intel community who's also um, serving as the ambassador. And it just kind of, you know, raises old lingering um, resentments uh, among the Germans. So it's it's definitely put them in an odd spot. But Rick Grinnell's foreign policy uh, chops in terms of NATO, in terms of the EU, are actually fairly conventional and in line Hmm. with Republican orthodoxy. So he's actually diverged from Trump um, several times on that issue. So it's less that and more the Germans just see him as kind of a troublemaker domestically. Hmm. And that's why they've been wary of, of his appointment here. So is it possible that on the information about Russian info war, that they're closing the barn door with Grinnell after the horse's out that Schiff has already been briefed and that there are reporters who, I mean, we've been doing this a long time now, reporting on um, Russian attacks on democracy, on everything up to the voting machines. Do you think that there's short of just a flat out denial that Russians are involved or they have a thumb on the scale for Trump? Do you think that there's more that only Grinnell will be privy to that, that 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 we won't be able to find out? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. Yeah, we, we don't know what we don't know. Exactly. Um, obviously, I think as we get closer to the election, the tactics are going to become more aggressive. Um, you know, we didn't see 
the hack and dump operation by the Russians, of course, until June of 2016, mm-hmm. a couple months before we didn't see the Podesta leak until about a month before the election. So there's still certainly more that can be done here. And I think what the intel community now is trying to do is show the Russians that they're keeping more a closer eye on them than ever before and try to deter them in that way. I mean, there were reports, of course, that U.S. officials were actually sending warnings to Russian trolls saying, we know your name, we know where you live, we know what you're doing to try to deter that kind of activity. Um, but but it is hard when you don't have the leadership from the top, of course, trying to convince, you know, Russian President Vladimir Putin that that he shouldn't do this and that there will be consequences. So while I I do think that the president is tightening his grip on, on the intel community based on our reporting and especially the flow of intel mm-hmm. between the agencies, I think that we're given the congressional pressure on the intel committee and intel agencies to produce this kind of information. I don't think Americans will be com- kept completely in the dark about it either. The, you know, we still, it, in trying to figure out whether 2016, how different 2020 and 2016 are, and, you know, it does seem like some um, some traumatized figures, maybe like sort of a, a clapper or a Brennan might say, it's just going to be exactly the same. And now it's worse because, you know, no one, no adult is around to stop it. It's just a bunch of Trump hacks. On the other hand, the American people, the media have gotten so much wiser to this kind of interference um, that, you know, I don't think anyone believes, I mean, aside from a few red hats, that there was no Russian interference and that it wasn't for Trump. I do think that, and maybe I'm an optimist, but I do think the impeachment and the Mueller investigation and the imprisonments and the indictments it did a pretty good job getting that entered into the record as a matter of fact. And the other thing is, with lies about coronavirus coming out, we can, like, we'll be able to test, you know, mm-hmm. there'll, there'll be empirical evidence of how the, the spread of coronavirus. We just can't trust Trump to tell the truth about intelligence. And I'm hoping that 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 uh, that vigilance will make this a better summer than the summer of 2016. We won't be as thrown. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with all of that. I mean, in 2016, not only the public was completely unprepared, but the U.S. government was completely unprepared. I mean, did not see this coming at all. Um, so so now we have kind of all all eyes on foreign interference. And, and look, I mean, it's not just the Russians, right? The Russians are obviously interfering for a very specific reason. Um, but it's also other countries like Iran and China who are trying to put their finger on the scale a bit. So this is coming from all directions. And I think as the public becomes savvier, you know, to influence operations and to, you know, bot networks and things like that that are, you know, promoting uh, divisive rhetoric, it's it's going to be easier to spot. And the media has gotten savvier as well with regard to taking documents that have been mm-hmm. stolen and leaked by, you know, WikiLeaks or whoever it might be to just kind of using those um, and, and reporting on them uncritically. That That's a big lesson that we learned from 2016. And hopefully it'll it's it's carrying over to this year. And if we get any kind of, you know, temptation um, in the form of future interference in that sense, you know, hopefully media organizations will think twice about running with it. So definitely a lot of progress has been made. Yeah. I do think while the media, you know, Joe Ito on the board of the New York Times said in something like right, I think we were, it was November, December 2016, 
um, and he's speaking for the New York Times, that the Times is no, was no longer reporting on pawns. They were the pawns. And that has, if nothing else, I think, been an embarrassment to many of us in the media that we were we were still like fighting the last, I mean, the last, the, you know, years ago, the WikiLeaks dump publishing from Assange's first set of diplomatic cables seemed like daring, you know, Pentagon Papers era journalism. And now it sort of seems like chumpery, like everyone is like really careful not to reproduce Russian propaganda. I, again, I just I hope that vigilance will hold because the only thing that will you know, stop Trump in this election, in my view, is turnout and vigilance about cheating. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I definitely think that, again, the IC is on high alert about this stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't help that we've seen signs that certain top leaders of the agencies and the bureau have been reluctant to speak publicly about national security threats. And I'm talking, of course, about the the, the cancellation of the public worldwide threats hearing, which, mm-hmm. of course, is because of the backlash that these intel leaders got last year from Trump when they when they gave assessments that differed from Trump's own assessments of, you know, things like Russia, China, North Korea. Um, and that is obviously a very worrisome trend. Um, mm-hmm. The other, of course, that, that intel folks point point me to is, you know, Gina Haspel, the CIA director, Mm -hmm. who has been, you know, treated in the media as someone who is, you know, a bulwark against Trump interference in CIA and someone who is a huge loyalist and won't let anything happen to the agency and will speak truth to power. That is apparently overstated, um, according to my conversations with, you know, several officials who know her, who have worked with her, and further kind of worried people who saw her at the State of the Union kind of standing and clapping for Trump's uh, remarks about domestic issues, which, of course, is a big no-no, even if you are a cabinet official um, for an intel uh, officer like that. So so a lot of, of worries in the IC about how much um, they're going to be pushing back against the president on certain things, how much they're going to you know, want to kind of stay under the radar to avoid his wrath. That's, that's, of course, not what we need, according to national security officials. What we need is them speaking truth to power and making sure that the president has the most accurate um, and, you know, solid information that he can have leading up to 2020, because any any gap in that uh, knowledge is obviously going to be a big threat to the election, democracy, national security in general. Hmm. This word about Haspel is just very unnerving and reminds me that, you know, many of us made the same mistake with Bill Barr, who's now investigating the CIA's conclusions about uh, about Russia's interference um, and, and, and its favorability to Trump that, you know, we just thought he'd be able to stand up to Trump. I think any time we think that someone's coming in and is able to stand up for Trump, we're probably wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, David Frum said early on, if you're asked to work for Trump, you're often being hired for your moral flexibility, for your, you know, willingness to defer to Trump. And uh, so you do the job you're hired for. Ugh, it's, I don't know, it's chilling to see the intelligence community affected the same way, the same way he's done with Barr in the judiciary and other branches in the Senate. So one last question. Yeah. I don't know how much relationship the the DNI and the wider intelligence community has to things like to information about coronavirus and pandemics and other 
other kind of relationships with hostile foreign powers like China or mostly hostile foreign powers that also have a stake in information being tightly regulated is another reason that Grinnell might be being brought in as not just to keep a lid on the Russia news, but to keep a lid on the news out of China around this virus. Yeah, we don't have reporting on that. But what we do know is that the White House has urged um, people uh, in charge of or privy to conversations about coronavirus and dealing with the outbreak to to put a lid on it, essentially, to just anything even remotely related to speaking out about coronavirus or anything like that has to go through the vice president's office. They're keeping a very, very, very tight lid on it. Um, and obviously, the president has been very angry about the coverage of it and how it's affected the markets. So it's a personal matter to him, it seems, rather than, you know, a security issue and a health issue. Um, And I think he made that pretty clear yesterday in his press conference as well, saying kind of disagreeing with the CDC's conclusions with, you know, people from the CDC standing right next to him. Um, It's it's Trump's world at this point. And whoever he brings in, I mean, the it's been clear that there's been a purge of people in the White House, in the administration that do not agree with him on certain things. One of the Pentagon's top officials, John Rood, um, was pushed out because of his disagreements with the president um, last week on major issues. So he wants to be surrounded by like-minded people in, in a way, you know, even more than he has ever before post-acquittal. Thank you so much for being here, Natasha, even if you're, you know, the bearer of, as usual, bad news about Trump. <laughs> and we'll have you back soon. Thank you so much. That's it for today's show. What did you think? Find us on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And are you a Slate Plus member yet? It's time to join up. Uncle Sam needs you. You get all the episodes ad-free, plus secret discounts and invitations and, and maybe even tricks to rig the election. I'm just kidding. You can't rig elections. That's not fair. $35 for the first year is all it takes. Slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob and Kevin Bendis. John D. Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. You can find him on Twitter at JohnnyD23. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Hello, this is U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders. And I realize this is not the Sanders cast. This is the Trump cast. But I thought it was important that I get on the show and talk to you about Donald Trump. He is an existential threat to this country. He literally said that the coronavirus was caught by 80,000 people and he prefers viruses that don't get caught.